Well, truly, He is worthy. Amen. In uh, just a few weeks, uh, I know a lot of you like to start reading and studying ahead when we do various studies. Uh, I'll be uh, starting a uh, a new study of the uh, New Testament book of Hebrews. And uh, we'll begin uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll go just right through the book. And uh, I'm very, very excited about this study, and I and I, I trust it will be uh, very meaningful, have a great impact upon our uh, church family. Now, let me explain today's message, which is uh, a little different, and uh, the, the motive uh, behind it. Uh, and let me say this for the sake of our guests. Most of our members are aware of this, uh, but this time of the year is when we join thousands of churches across the na- nation uh, to celebrate the sanctity of human life that human life is precious, that it has intrinsic worth and value because it's created in the image of God. And in light of that, to protest abortion as the slaughter of the most innocent and defenseless member of the human family. And then also to encourage the church family and churches throughout the nation uh, to get behind the local pregnancy centers like the one we operate, Sound Choices Pregnancy Clinic, that are standing in the gap, uh, reaching out to these uh, women that are in very difficult pregnancies uh, to see them turn from abortion and to choose life for their little ones, to have the opportunity uh, to discover their God-given destiny. And most of you know that our church is uh, one of the leaders uh, in the pregnancy center movement uh, in the nation uh, today. We were the very first church uh, to establish a pregnancy center Uh, Back in uh, March of 1981, as I mentioned, now goes by the name Sound Choices Pregnancy Clinic. It's just right down Winton Road off of Winton Court. Uh, And being one of the early pioneers, uh, people began to turn to us uh, for help, for assistance. And at that time, I was not the senior pastor. You remember, I was one of the associate pastors. And the church got so behind this work that they actually gave me just carte blanche freedom to travel uh, to help groups uh, start pregnancy centers around the nation. And so throughout the 80s and 90s and even uh, into this decade, uh, I traveled all over the country. And we have been involved in probably establishing close to 600 pregnancy centers uh, throughout the nation. And the message that I'm going to give today is the message that is most often requested uh, from people throughout the nation. Uh, And we now have the opportunity with uh, some new uh, technology that we got last year uh, to be able to get this up in a video format on our website so that now, uh, once I get this on our website, uh, people from anywhere in the nation, really anywhere in the world, because we've been involved internationally in this effort as well, Uh, They can go to our church website and be able to download this message. So I I trust the uh, church to give me the freedom to share this. Uh, I have shared this before with you. Uh, So you have heard this message uh, in times uh, past. But again, the reason to give it today is to be able to get this on our church website in a video format where then uh, people from uh, throughout this nation and internationally can go into that website and download this message, like I mentioned, which has often uh, been requested. So let me pray, and we'll get, we'll get started. Father, 
we simply uh, commit this message uh, to you. And uh, Father, we pray that you would use it uh, to accomplish your purposes, not only here, uh, but wherever it would be, uh, be heard. And uh, Lord, use it to motivate us uh, to truly be all that you desire us to be as believers, as followers of Christ, uh, to stand in the gap. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. A slippery slope, a line drawn in the sand, and a gap to stand in. Uh, Please take your Bibles and open them to Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel 22 catalogs the sins of Israel which had brought the nation face-to-face with God's judgment. And let's just read the first eight verses, just for you to sort of get uh, uh, the flavor of this chapter, that it is God reproving His nation and pronouncing judgment on them for their sins. Ezekiel chapter 22, we'll read the first eight verses. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man... Will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Then cause her to know all her abominations. And you shall say, Thus says the Lord God, a city shedding blood in her midst, so that her time will come, and that makes idols contrary to her interest for defilement. You have become guilty by the blood which you have shed, and defiled by the idols which you have made. Thus, you have brought your days near and have come to your years. That would better be translated, you have brought your days to a close and the end of your years has come. It's a very powerful pronouncement of God's judgment uh, on them. And then he goes, Therefore I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mocking to all the lands. Those who are near and those who are far from you will mock you. You of ill repute, full of turmoil. Behold, the rulers of Israel, each according to his power, have been in you for the purpose of shedding blood. They have treated father and mother lightly within you. The alien they have oppressed in your midst. The fatherless and the widow they have wronged in you. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. Later in the chapter, God says both their political and religious leaders had lost the ability to distinguish between the profane and the holy, between the clean and the unclean. Every level of society was filled with greed, immorality, and violence. Does it sound like any other nation you might know today? Yes, sadly, the United States of America. Think about this just for a moment. In the United States which was established on Christian principles, Christian beliefs, and biblical morality, the Democratic Party in the last election adopted a platform advocating the sins of Romans chapter 1. Everything that God hates, distributing condoms for fornication, homosexual marriage, and the slaughter of unborn children during all nine months of pregnancy. 
You may remember they even voted God out of the platform, even though they eventually voted him back in. I personally believe it was worse when they voted God back in, because it is absolute blasphemy to associate God with immorality, homosexual marriage, and the holocaust of the most innocent and defenseless member of the human family. Now, my, my purpose in saying that is not to make a political statement. We see the same disturbing trends in the Republican, Libertarian, and Independent parties of our day on many of the key moral issues. My point is simply this. The same godless mindset that had brought Israel to God's judgment has brought the United States of America to God's judgment. George Barna is the leading researcher of America's moral and spiritual beliefs. And he conducted a survey to determine how many Americans embrace and live by a biblical worldview. Now, for the purpose of the survey, a biblical worldview was defined as believing that absolute moral truths exist, and those truths are found in the Bible, that the Bible is accurate in all the principles it teaches. Satan is considered to be real, a real being of force, not merely symbolic. A person cannot earn his way to heaven by doing good works. Jesus lived a sinful life on earth, and God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. Now, in the research, anyone who held all of those beliefs was said to have a biblical worldview. Barner discovered that only 9% of Americans believe in a biblical worldview. Only 9%. Even more, more alarming is the fact that among those who are 18 to 23, among those who are 18 to 23, less than one-half of one percent hold to a biblical worldview. The most shocking find is only one out of five people who claim to be born-again believers embrace a biblical worldview. So the problem is not just out there, it's what? In here, in the church as well. And we wonder why we are running headlong into God's judgment. Look with me now at the slippery slope to God's judgment. The slippery slope to God's judgment. The slide to judgment begins with idolatry. The slide to judgment begins always begins with idolatry, which is elevating anything above God, which becomes then the object of my attention, the object of my affections and my allegiance. Remember, Jesus said the greatest of all the commandments is to love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Man was created to find his purpose, to find true joy in knowing and loving God. Idolatry is turning away from God to find purpose and joy in the pursuit of other things. 
What are America's idols? You tell me. What are some of America's idols? Just yell them out. Money. Sports. Power. Pleasure. I mean, we could go on and on. Affluence. uh, (coughs) Excuse me. Materialism. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 11, 12, and 13. My people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. The heavens are shocked at such a thing and shrink back in horror and dismay, says the Lord. (coughs) Excuse me. For my people have done two evils. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water. See, the tragedy is when you abandon God, the fountain of living water, to pursue worthless idols, you end up with nothing but what? Broken cisterns, broken lives, broken families, and a broken nation that wanders aimlessly without purpose, seeking joy but never finding it. You know, one other point before we move on. Our political leaders keep telling us that the number one priority is what? We need to fix our economy. But when are we going to acknowledge that our economy is broken because we have forsaken God to chase after the idols of greed, pleasure, and materialism? Why would God fix and fill the broken cistern of our economy while we remain empty of His righteousness? Now, once we've exchanged the glorious God to chase after worthless idols, what is the next inevitable step down the slippery slope to God's judgment? Well, idolatry leads to immorality. And again, it is inevitable. Idolatry always leads to immorality, which is a focus on gratifying self instead of glorifying God. See, once a nation forsakes God to pursue worthless idols, there are no moral absolutes or restraints, and anything goes. Once you push God out of the driver's seat, you will be driven by your own selfish desires, and it will be just a matter of time before you get out of control, crash, and burn. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 and 4. And does this not sum up the character of our nation? Lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Look at Ephesians 4, verses 18 and 19. Due to the hardening of their hearts, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Never satisfied. America surpasses virtually every nation in the world in fornication, adultery, abortion, pornography, homosexuality, drunkenness, drug addiction, and corruption at every level of society. To make matters worse, we are told in the name of freedom, we must not only tolerate these sins, but what? Condone them. Freedom used to be rooted in moral responsibility and serving others, but now it is used as an excuse for selfishness and perversion. As a result, we call good evil and evil good, and when that happens, you can know God's judgment is close at hand. Idolatry, immorality, what is the next step on the slippery slope of God's judgment? 
which is borne out throughout history in every nation that knew God and then forsook Him, immorality inevitably leads to inhumanity. Idolatry, immorality, and then inhumanity. Because any country that turns from God loses the basis for the sanctity of human life. See, each human life has intrinsic worth because every human life is created in the image of God. Remove the Creator, remove the Creator, and man is nothing more than the product of blind chance, where no moral absolutes exist and the strongest survive. In a world without God, life becomes cheap. Crime rises, abuse increases, abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia become acceptable practices for the greater good of society. Since the legalization of abortion in January 22, 1973, we have witnessed over 55 million abortions. Folks, that is a truly a silent holocaust. That's over a million babies a year. That's a child losing its life just about every 20 seconds. So if I preach for 40 minutes today, during those 40 minutes, 120 babies' lives will be unjustly lost, snuffed out, never to see the light of day, never to have the opportunity to discover his or her God-given destiny. Going back to Ezekiel 23, look at what we read in verses 3 and 4. And give her, Jerusalem, this message from the sovereign Lord. O, O city of murderers, doomed and damned, city of idols, filthy and foul, you are guilty because of the blood you have shed. Now let me ask you just a very simple question. Is America guilty of idolatry? Is America guilty of immorality? Is America guilty of inhumanity? Yes, and we are racing towards God's judgment. So look with me now at the line God has drawn in the sand. The line that God has drawn in the sand for any nation, including the United States of America. Look at Revelation chapter 18, verses 5 through 8. It says, Her sins stink to high heaven. God has remembered every evil she's done. Bring her flaunting in wild ways to torment and tears. And one day, disasters will crush her, death, heartbreak, and famine. Then she'll be burned by fire because God, the strong God who judges her, has had enough. The question we need to ask is, what is the line that God has drawn in the sand And when once it is crossed, God says, I've had enough. And at that point, judgment is inescapable. And the answer is the shedding of innocent blood. The Bible is very, very clear on this. The shedding of innocent blood. And let me give you a biblical example of this. You'll see in your notes the uh, Scripture passages, and you're welcome to turn in your Bible and walk through this with me, or if you just want to sit back and listen, knowing you have this in your notes, and you can go back over this. But uh, let me begin in Second Kings 
chapter 22 and 23. Chapter 22 and 23 records the reign of good King Josiah. Some of you may remember King Josiah. He was considered the child king. His uh, granddaddy was uh, Manasseh. Manasseh was the most wicked of all of Judah's kings. He also had the longest reign of any king of 55 years. Uh, This man, as we're going to see in a moment, was uh, as wicked as they uh, come. He uh, literally took the temple of the holy God and he converted it into a house of prostitution. He actually attempted to remove all the copies of the Word of God, just just absolutely remove God's Word uh, from the life of the nation. He was followed by his son Ammon, who had a very short two-year reign, and then he was assassinated by some of his own folks. And then at the age of eight, little Josiah ascends to the throne. The Bible tells us at the age of 16, uh, this young boy uh, began to seek the Lord. Um, Apparently because of the influence of his godly mother and uh, possibly the influence of the uh, prophet Jeremiah who would have been living at this time. Josiah, as he began to seek God, orchestrated the greatest national reformation recorded uh, in the Scripture. Uh, One of the first things he did was to clean up the temple. He He found this one old, faithful high priest. His name was Hilkiah. And he commanded Hilkiah to go into the temple and, uh, and that he had whatever he needed to be able to repair it, clean it all up, get it ready uh, for worship. As Hilkiah is repairing the temple, he discovers a copy of God's Word, a copy of the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, that apparently had been hidden by a faithful priest during the days of Manasseh when he attempted to destroy all the copies of the Word of God. Hilkai brings that copy to Josiah. Josiah asked Hilkai to read it to him. And in one sitting, Hilkai begins at Genesis 1-1 and he goes and he reads all the way through to the book through the book of Deuteronomy. When he finishes, Josiah tears his clothes and he begins to, to grieve realizing just how far the nation had strayed from God. And he renewed his commitment to love God with all of his heart. And out of that love to obey God and an attempt to uh, clean up uh, the nation. And he did exactly that. He, he reinstituted worship and uh, he removed all of the idols and all of the high places where they were worshiping uh, false gods. Matter of fact, in uh, chapter 23, uh, we read in verse 24 concerning Josiah. Moreover, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols. And notice, and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might confirm the words of the law, which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. And then notice verse 25, this amazing evaluation that God gives of this young man. And it says, and before him, there was no king like him 
who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Now, I need to pause and say right here, and you'll notice in your notes I have in parenthesis Jeremiah 3.10. You need to understand, although Josiah had an authentic encounter with God that forever changed his life in his entire direction, the, men, the, the nation's heart was never really captured. That verse in Jeremiah which he spoke during the reign of Josiah, he states that although the people returned to God during this period of time, they did not return to him with their hearts. He said, and, and the word that he uses in our English Bible is that they returned to him in deception. And in the Hebrew text, that word literally means a sham or a fraud. So God is saying, although Josiah's heart was right, as pure as gold, the nation's heart was never captured. And although they followed Josiah outwardly and a lot of the external rituals and the worship inside their hearts, it was just a sham. It was just a fraud. It was just all a deception, which became very obvious as soon as Josiah died. And then notice verse 26. And the first time I read this verse, it was extremely shocking to me. After giving this glowing evaluation of Josiah, we read, However, the Lord did not turn away from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah. And I remember protesting when I first read that. I said, wait a minute, God. I said, Josiah's on the throne. Good Josiah. This, this man that loves you and you love him. And you've just given this glowing evaluation of him. I mean, I mean why? Uh, are you still committed to judging your people? And it was as the Lord said, Andrew, keep reading. And it says, because of the propagations with which Manasseh had provoked him. Now, when I read that, I'll be honest, I became even a little more confused and perplexed. I said, wait a minute. <laughs> Lord, Manasseh's been in the grave for some years now. He's dead and gone. Josiah is on the throne. I mean, Lord, what sin could Manasseh have committed that it would have been so gross and so perverted that even the reign of godly Josiah could not avert God's judgment. And if you turn back to 2 Kings 21, we find the unique sin that Manasseh was guilty of. 2 Kings chapter 21. Look first at verse 9. It says, But they did not listen. And Manasseh seduced them, talking about seducing the people of Israel to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed (coughs) before the sons of Israel. And then look at verse 6. It says, he made his son pass through the fire. Do you know what that's referring to? The God that Manasseh worshipped was the false god, the idol Molech. Uh, Thank you, Chris. That's very kind of you. Chris is always on the spot for her daddy. Uh, He he worshipped the false god, (coughs) Molech. (coughs) I'm sorry. 
I'm coming off of an illness and I'm, I'm struggling up here. Um, Molech was this idol that was half man, half beast. And his arms were stretched out like this. And underneath the arms, they would build this uh, huge furnace, huge fire that would just cause those arms to be uh, just blazing hot. And in the worship of this God, the people would take their infants and place them in the arms of Molech to be burned to death. And they believed that this appeased Molech, and it ensured the nation prosperity and peace. And not only did Manasseh do this, but he led the children of Israel to do this. Uh, this passage is not in your notes, but in Psalm 106, uh, it is talking about this period of time. Verse 35 says, But they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. And then listen to verse 37 and 38. They even sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Look at verse 16 of uh, 2 Kings chapter 21. It says, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides his sins, which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, just let me ask you a question. Is America covered? Is America polluted with the shedding of innocent blood? Yes. From the east coast to the west coast, from our northernmost point to the southernmost point. More babies slaughtered in abortion in a single year than all the soldiers killed in all the wars in our nation's history. Just in one year. Second Kings chapter 24. It was as a result of the shedding of innocent blood that God judged his people. That was the line he had drawn in the sand. And once crossed, he brought judgment. And that judgment came in Second Kings chapter 24. He let Josiah, he gave Josiah a promise that you'll go to your grave in peace. But then shortly after he went to the grave. God let those wills of judgment move. And eventually he brought the Babylonian empire from the north down upon his people. And they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Uh, conquered, captured the nation. And led many of them away into slavery, into captivity. Known, of course, as the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. And look at verse 3. 2 Kings 24, verse 3. Surely, at the command of the Lord, it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood which he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. The Lord would not forgive. Now, let's be very, very clear about something. Why would... 
the Lord not forgive? <coughs> because the people would not repent. There's no sin that God cannot forgive you of. There's no sin that God cannot cleanse. Matter of fact, you know one of the greatest examples of that is Manasseh. Do you know that although Manasseh's sin brought judgment upon the nation, you can read the scriptures in Second Chronicles, and Manasseh eventually turned his heart to the Lord and knew his forgiveness. So when you walk the streets of gold, you're going to rub shoulders with Manasseh. A man that literally filled Jerusalem from one end to another with the shedding of innocent blood. So there's no sin that God cannot forgive. But if you do not repent, God cannot forgive. God cannot cleanse. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36 to emphasize this. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. very last chapter (coughs) of 2 Chronicles. Look at verse 15. This shows God's love and compassion for His people during this period of time. And the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by His messengers. Why? Because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised His words and scoffed at His prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people and there was no what? Remedy. Again, there was no remedy. There was no forgiveness because they mocked God. They mocked his messengers. God was extending his hands in compassion for his people to return to him, but they refused. Therefore, verse 17, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. Turn over to the book of Amos. Book of Amos. And I'll have to do this very, very briefly, but uh, this is a fascinating study. We're talking about this line God has drawn in the sand for a nation. And once You cross that line, judgment is inescapable, that line being the shedding of innocent blood. In the first two chapters of Amos, you have God pronouncing judgment on eight different nations, including the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the fascinating thing, if you you read this, for each nation, He uses the same language. For example, look at verse 3, "...thus says the Lord." For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Look at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Verse 9. For three transgressions of Tyre, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. That statement is made for all eight nations. That statement is a Hebrew idiom that means the point, you've passed the point of no return. In other words... You have crossed that line now that I drew in the sand. And now judgment is inescapable. And then the fascinating thing that you see with all eight of these nations is the sin that God pinpoints, the sin that God highlights is inhumanity, 
shedding of innocent blood. Look at it with me. Look at, uh, go back to verse 3 where it says, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will now revoke its punishment. Why? Because they thrust Gilead with implements of sharp iron, so I will send fire upon the house of Haziel. Look at verse 6 again. For three transgressions of gas and for four I will not revoke its punishment. Why? Because they deported an entire population to deliver it to Edom. In other words, they put an entire population into slavery. And God says, Therefore I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza. Look at verse 9. For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Why? Because they delivered up an entire population to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre. Look at verse 11. For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Why? Because he pursued his brother with the sword while he stifled his compassion. His anger also tore continually and he maintained his fury forever. So I will send fire upon Teman. Look at verse 13. For three transgressions of the son of Ammon, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders, so I will kindle a fire on the wall of Rabbah. And we could go on and on with with each of these nations. And you can do that on your own uh, afterwards. But you see very, very clearly here in these first two chapters, that is the line God has drawn in the sand, the shedding of innocent blood. Look at Jeremiah chapter 15. Jeremiah chapter 15. This is Jeremiah announcing God's judgment during this same period of time. And he makes this incredible statement in the first four verses of Jeremiah 15. It says, Then the Lord said to me, and don't miss this, even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not be with this people. Send them away from my presence and let them go. Let me just pause right there. Why do you think he singled out Moses and Samuel? Because Moses and Samuel were the two greatest intercessors in the history of Israel. And God said, even if Moses, even if Samuel were to stand before me for this people, it would do no good. And why? Let's move on. Verse 2, and it shall... Be that when they say to you, where should we go? Then you will tell them, thus says the Lord, those destined for death to death, and those destined for the sword to the sword, and those destined for famine to famine, and those destined for captivity to captivity. And I shall appoint over them four kinds of doom, declares the Lord, the sword to slay, the dogs to drag off, and the birds of the sky, and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And don't miss verse 4. And I will make them an object of horror among all the kings of the earth. Why? Because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. And what did he do? He filled Jerusalem from one end to the other with innocent blood. The innocent blood of those little infants that were slaughtered, burned to death in the arms of Molech. Look at Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel chapter 14. Again, just emphasizing this line God has drawn in the sand. Once crossed, God brings judgment. Ezekiel 14 verse 12, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, 
And I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord. Now, why do you think he singles out Noah, Daniel, and Job? Well, Noah lived through what? The judgment of the flood. Daniel lived through what? The Babylonian captivity that we just talked about. And of course, Job, you know, the tremendous adversity that he faced in his life. And God is saying, even these three men that were delivered by my mercy in times of judgment, you know, even if they were alive right now, they, they, they couldn't deliver anyone else but themselves. He goes on to say that he, they couldn't even deliver their own sons and daughters. And then look at Ezekiel 9. Look at Ezekiel 9. This is when, this is a picture of God executing the judgment on his people. And I would encourage you to read this entire chapter. But in the, in, in the beginning, verse 1, you see this, this cry f- for the executioners to come with their destroying weapons in their hand. These would be the angels that are going to execute uh, God's judgment. And uh, he sees them coming. And then, but notice verse 4, the instructions that are given. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, women, but do not touch any man on whom is the mark. So before the judgment is executed, God says, I want you to mark the righteous. I want you to mark that faithful remnant that still remains in the country. That faithful remnant that have tried to make a difference, that have stood true to me at great cost of their own lives, that sigh and groan and moan and grieve over these atrocities, over the idolatry, the immorality, the inhumanity, the shedding of the... And, and then when you execute, you spare these individuals, but have pity on no one else. And then notice, I stopped reading at verse 6, right at the middle. Notice, and don't miss it. And you shall start from my, where does the judgment start? Sanctuary. So they started with who? The elders who were before the temple. And when judgment is brought upon a nation, God always begins at the household of God. Because it is our responsibility to be light. It's our responsibility to be salt. It's our responsibility to be that voice of the prophet that rails against the sin of the people, but in compassion reaches out for the people to return to the Lord, to know forgiveness, to know cleansing, to know a revival, to know God's blessing and prosperity. Now, Look there at Jeremiah 2.19. This is also emphasized in 4.18. Discover how God judges. And I think this is important to mention. 
It says your own wickedness will correct you. What will correct you? Your own wickedness. And your apostasies will reprove you. Reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. And the dread of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. Notice, when it, when, it, when it comes to that point where God says judgment is inescapable, all that God has to do is what? All he has to do is stop restraining. Because we're already on a path to self-destruction. We're already moving fast over that cliff. Matter of fact, I mentioned Hosea 5. We won't turn there again for sake of time, but let me just give you an overview. God says, this is the way that I judge a nation that turns from me. To serve idols. To practice immorality. Be guilty of the shedding of innocent blood. He, he said, first I became like a moth to them. And the, and the point of the illustration there is, I allowed for internal corruption to come to the nation. In other words, they began to rot from the inside out. They began to collapse from the inside out. I mean, the very fabric of nation just began to unravel. And he said, I allowed that to happen, hoping that they would see their sickness, that they would see their need for me. And they would come back to me so that I could heal them, so that I could love them, so that I could cleanse them. But sadly, the nation of Israel did not return to God. They turned to other nations for help, other nations for assistance. Then God says, I became like a lion to them. And the picture there is, he said, I would allow catastrophe to hit the nation. It is just sudden, unexpected catastrophes, hoping that that would get the people's attention. And that didn't get their attention. And then you know what the last step is? And it's always the last step in God's judgment. God said, I'm just going to go away and return to my place. And I'm just going to let them have their own way. I'm going to let them follow that road to self-destruction. And again, as an act of love, hoping that eventually They'll end up in the pig pen like the prodigal son and come to their senses and return to a loving creator, loving redeemer and father who is willing to cleanse them and forgive them and to restore them. Even Romans 1 that I mentioned there. What do you see repeatedly in that chapter on the way God judges a culture or a nation? You see that repeated repeated phrase, he what? He gave them what? Up. He, it just means he didn't have to do anything. He just had to lay the restraints off. In other words, the thought is, you know, here the nation is. And God's the supreme authority. And we find protection. We provide provision as we stay under his authority. But the moment we choose to turn from God, to chase after worthless idols, to follow perversion... To shed innocent blood. See, we're out from under God's protection. We're out from under God's provision. And now all God's got to do is let the natural course of action just, just, just take its place. And he knows where, where it's heading. So we looked at the slippery slope that leads to God's judgment. And the line God is drawn in the sand. Look at me at the gap. 
to stand in as we close. To really bring this home, this is not easy to do. I've probably used this article thousands of times, literally, in my speaking engagements. I always become very emotional, broken. I've but it brings everything into sharp focus. This article was written by a doctor, Dr. Richard Seltzer, renowned surgeon on the West Coast. He went to one of his friends, one of his colleagues, who was an OBGYN, Dr. Seltzer is not, one of, his university, one of his colleagues who practiced at a university hospital and who performed abortions. And Dr. Seltzer asked permission to stand in the room while this abortion was being performed. And he was granted permission to do so. He witnessed an abortion on a Jamaican woman in her 24th week of pregnancy. The type of abortion that was used is what's called a prostaglandin abortion. They just simply, by means of a long needle, go directly into the womb introduce this hormonal substance, prostaglandin, into the amniotic fluid. And the way it works, it just throws the woman into violent labor contractions. Because it's being done so early in the pregnancy, in most cases the baby cannot survive the birthing process and is born dead, which is the goal, of course, of the abortionist. Now, as I read this, I I don't read it because it gets into the graphic, physical aspects of abortion, it doesn't, but I read it so you can identify with this doctor. Now listen very closely. Who is not a believer, who is not pro-life, he is pro-abortion. The doctor who wrote this article is pro-abortion. An unbeliever. And this is what he wrote. The needle has just been inserted into the woman's abdomen. He says, in the room we are six. Two physicians, two nurses, the patient, and me. The participants are are busy, very attentive. I am not at all busy, but I'm no less attentive, and I want to see. And I see something. It's unexpected, utterly unexpected, like the disturbance in the earth, a tumultuous jarring. I see a movement, a small one, but I've seen it. And then I see it again. And now I see that it is at the hub of the needle in the woman's belly that is jerked first to one side and then to the other side once more it wobbles it is tugged like a fishing line nibbled by a sunfish again and I know it is the fetus that worries thus it is the fetus struggling against the needle struggling how can that be I think that cannot be I think The fetus feels no pain, cannot feel fear, has no motivation. It's merely a reflex. I point to the needle. It's a reflex, says the abortionist. But by the end of the fifth month, the fetus weighs about one pound and is about 12 inches long. Hair is on the head. There are eyebrows and eyelashes. Pale pink nipples now show on the chest. Nails are present at the fingertips and at the toes. 
At the beginning of the sixth month, the fetus can cry, can suck, and make a fist. He kicks. He punches. The mother can see this, can feel this. His eyelids, until now closed, are now open. He may look up, down, and sideways. His grip is very strong. He can support his weight by holding with one hand. A reflex. The abortionist says, I hear him, but I saw something in that mass of cells understand that it must bob and butt. And I see it again. I have an impulse to shove to the table. It's just a step to seize that needle and to pull it out. We are not six, I think. We are seven. Something strangles there. An effort, its effort binds me to it. I don't shove to the table. I take no little step. It would be, well, madness. Everyone here wants the needle where it is. Six do, no, five. I close my eyes and I imagine to see inside the uterus. It is bathed in ruby gloom. I see the creature curled upon himself. His knees are flexed. His head is bent upon his chest. It is in fluid and gently rocks to the rhythm of the distant heartbeat. It resembles a sleeping infant. Its place is entered by something. It is sudden. A point coming, a needle. A spike of daylight pierces the chamber. Now the light is extinguished. The needle comes closer in the pool. The point grazes the thigh and I stir. Perhaps I wake from dozing. The light is there again. I twist and straighten. My arms and legs push. My hand finds the shaft and grabs. I grab, I bend the needle this way and that. The point probes, touches on my belly. My mouth opens. Could I cry out? All is a commotion and a churning. There's a presence in the pool and activity. The pool colors, reddens, and darkens. And then here's how this unbeliever, pro-abortionist, concluded his article. I saw it. I saw, I saw, I felt. In that room, just a pace away, life prodded. Life fending off. I saw life swept by flood, blackening. Then out. Ezekiel 22, verses 30 and 31. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. Notice, even at this point, God wants to spare His people from judgment. And He's looking for that one man, that one woman, that one church that would be willing to take a stand so that He would not destroy it. Thus I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their way, their own way I have brought upon their heads, declares the Lord. God is searching for someone to stand in the gap, to stop the slaughter of the innocent so that he will not have to destroy the land. Dr. Selcher was unwilling to take that small step to the table, to seize the needle and to pull it out. You and I must be willing to take whatever steps of obedience necessary at whatever the cost 
to stand in the gap on behalf of these little ones that are being slaughtered. Let me give you a very practical definition of a gap. It's the space between what is and what God says ought to be. Do you understand that? It's the space between what is and what God says ought to be. See, whether it's our lives, our family, our church, or nation, there are gaps between what is and what God says it ought to be. And in this case, what is, is abortion, the slaughter of the innocent, that silent holocaust. What ought to be is the sanctity of human life. As Christians, we are called to stand in that gap and to close the gap. Our battle cry, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, here on earth as it is in heaven. See, God is searching for someone to stand in the gap, and there is no more important moral gap to stand in than the sanctity of human life. Why? Because there is an an unbreakable link between the existence of the personal infinite God and the intrinsic worth of each and every human life. Abortion not only attacks the sanctity of human life, but it attacks belief in the very existence of God. Every abortion not only kills a baby, it declares that God is dead. And once a nation declares God is dead, that nation is dead. Left without a moral compass, without the ability to find marriage or the family, and we're unraveling and we're on a path to self destruction. In biblical days, a wall was built around a city for protection and defense against the assault of an enemy. And when under the attack, the enemy would attempt to make a breach in the wall, a gap in the wall, and once that gap was made, At that gap, at that breach, at that point, the enemy would pour in like a flood. And folks, can you imagine the courage it took for a soldier with the enemy pouring in like a flood to actually run to that gap I mean run to it knowing that he may lose his life and engage the enemy to repel the enemy and then to repair the wall that's what we're called to do no matter the cost and how do we stand in the gap today look at the word life in your notes Love. That's where it starts. Love. And here I'm talking about our pregnancy centers. See, it's not just enough for me to stand up and say abortion is wrong. It's not, it's not enough for the church to take its prophetic stand and to protest abortion as evil, as the shedding of innocent blood. We need to do that. But in conjunction with that, we need to be out there on the front lines in compassionate ministry where people are hurting, where people are broken, where people are struggling, where people are being exploited, where sin is broken in their lives to provide loving, compassionate alternatives. 
Not only to turn them from abortion to choose life for their little one, knowing that they won't have to walk alone through these difficult days or beyond. We will be there for them. But also to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. And that they can be transformed by His life and His love. To know moral purity, to know His grace and provision. So we begin with love. Whether it's our pregnancy centers or our adoption agencies or in the maternity homes. Providing those loving alternatives. The I is intercede. If we're going to win this fight, we're going to win this fight on our knees before God. And I've said before, if there's a one great need in the church today, it's a need for a revival in prayer. So that we would return to our knees and see the power that we wield as we turn to God to avail ourselves of His authority, of His power, of His might, as we take that stand in the gap, regardless of its difficulty. And then the letter F, fight. Fight, fight, fight. We should never let an advocate stand up and say anything without us countering. I mean, whether it's in the newspaper, whether it's in TV, whether it's radio, wherever it's at, We need to stand up and say, no. We need to redefine the language. That when you talk about choice, you're talking about the choice to kill. But again, doing it in kindness. And and let me just say briefly, there's no one on planet earth that loves the woman that has suffered an abortion more than I do. I've ministered to many, many of these women. A message like this is not meant to heap more pain upon your life. What I have found is you understand this message more than anyone else. And I found post-abortive women appreciate the need for this message to get out. But I want to say there's forgiveness with God. There's healing with God. And I've seen it over and over again. And then the E, evangelize. Folks, this nation is going to be changed. Let me put it in real simple terms. This nation is going to be changed one heart at a time. One heart at a time. One life at a time. And if we do not do it as believers, who's going to do it? If we're not willing to reach out to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our friends, to our family then who will? So God is searching for someone to stand in the gap so he will not have to destroy the land. Here's the question. Will you stand in the gap? Are you willing to stand in the gap? Are you willing to support the pregnancy centers? Are you willing to intercede? Are you willing to fight? Are you willing to evangelize? To stop being a passive a passive spectator, but to become an active participant, to enlist in the army and get involved in the warfare. And for those who choose to stand in the gap, let me give you God's promise. Second Chronicles chapter 16, 9. I love this, and I'll close with this. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. In other words, the simple point is this. If you stand in that gap for God, God's going to stand with you. And that's what God's looking for. 
He's looking for that follower of Christ. He's looking for that soldier of Christ that's running to that gap. Regardless of the price, regardless of what it may cost him to make his stand for God. And God says, I'm standing with him. And he's going to have my authority. He's going to have my power. He's going to have my grace. And I will not fail him. I will not forsake him. Father, just give us grace to be obedient. Give us the grace to stand in the gap as individuals, as families, as a church family. And as a church family, we we never rest on our past laurels. But may we see the need to continue to engage in the battle with even greater fervor, with even greater enthusiasm. And so, Lord, be that power at work in us that we might love, that we might intercede, that we might fight, that we might evangelize. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.